Hi everyone and welcome to the Naked Guru experience. Uh, this channel has been going now for one year. I just wanted to say a big thank you to all the subscribers, the 300 plus subscribers that we have uh, that are coming along for the journey and deep diving into some of these interesting conversations with some really interesting people. So the conversation you're just about to see is uh, with Dr. Rick Strassman, author of DMT, The Spirit Molecule, who's one of my personal heroes. Uh, it's been good to talk to him. Audio is a little bit rough because he's up in the mountains in New Mexico. So it's, it's okay, it's, uh, it's doable for those of you with patience. Um, we also have the interview with uh, Chris Beige, LSD in the Mind of the Universe. And um, next, next uh, week, I will be interviewing Rupert Sheldrake, who is also one of my uh, all-time heroes. So this content is really for people that are into psychology, philosophy, spirituality, and psychedelics. So it's pretty niche stuff. But if that's what you're into, that's what we talk about on this channel. So we're really deep diving into what do these experiences mean, people that are going through their own experiences, their own journey of personal growth. Um, I think it's useful. It's useful to listen to these people talk about their perspectives. Uh, and everybody in the world has a perspective, right? And everybody has an interesting story to tell. So uh, right now I'm only producing about one video a week. Um, but I think we're going to hype this up over this coming year. I really want to get talking to as many people as possible. I'd also like to take um, my subscribers on a journey uh, into Thailand and, and Bali and some of the places where... I go and live. So thank you for subscribing. Thank you for liking the content. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. That's the main thing. Thank you. Okay, welcome everyone to the Naked Guru Experience. These are conversations of psychology, spirituality, philosophy, and consciousness. As ever, it really helps if you like and subscribe to the channel. And a big thank you to our sponsors, the Psychedelic Society. Today's discussion is with Dr. Rick Strassman. And just a reminder, today we'll be giving away a free copy of Rick's latest book, uh, which will be announced at the end of this discussion. Dr. Strassman is an American Clinical Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. He has held a fellowship in clinical psychopharmacology research at the University of California and was a professor of psychiatry for 11 years at the University of New Mexico. From 1990 to 1995, Dr. Strassman conducted U.S. government-approved and funded clinical research at the University of New Mexico, in which he injected 60 volunteers with DMT, one of the most powerful psychedelics known to man. His detailed account of those sessions is an extraordinary inquiry into the nature of the human mind and the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. He is author of numerous books, including DMT, The Spirit Molecule, DMT and the Soul of Prophecy, and his latest book, Joseph Levy, Escapes Death. Welcome, Rick, and thank you for agreeing to the discussion. Well, thanks for having me. So, Rick, I know you have, um, you have many podcasts and many discussions online, and many of them detail the intricate workings and dynamics of those studies that took place in the 90s. In fact, they go into a lot of detail on how you got the uh, approved funding, funding and uh, approved government approval. Um, so what I was hoping to do today is attempt the impossible and cover um, all three uh, of, of, of the main works, uh, the DMT, the spirit molecule, DMT, the soul of prophecy, and your latest work that I've just finished, uh, Joseph Levy Escapes Death. So I'm hoping to really go quite broad uh, with our, our view, if that's okay with you. Uh, sure. And uh, 
you know, we could make passing mention of the book I co-authored called Inner Paths to Outer Space. That came out a few years after the DMT book. Perfect. Perfect. So I just wanted to start with, um, for those that are familiar with DMT, that already know the territory very well, but for those that aren't, um, I wonder if you just give us a definition of what, what is DMT and what is the topic of our discussion really today? Well, DMT stands for dimethyltryptamine. Uh, it's a relatively simple psychedelic drug, you know, simple in as much as it's not, uh, you know, chemically complicated. It's not much larger than blood sugar, you know, glucose. Um, you know, so it's kind of the prototypical psychedelic, uh, especially in the family of tryptamine psychedelics, which includes LSD um, and uh, psilocybin. Um, it's uh, structure related to serotonin and melatonin you know that is its chemical formula you know looks like serotonin and uh, melatonin um, it's uh, quite prof it's quite um, it's quite profoundly psychedelic uh, and uh, one of its unique characteristics is that it's found widely distributed in the natural world uh, and, and then in the natural world, uh, you know, dozens, if not you know, hundreds of plants, um, every mammal that's been investigated to date, um, including humans. Um, it uh, was first discovered in uh, plants from Latin America that produced you know, psychedelic effects. And it was discovered to be, um, or it was determined to be psychedelic itself, you know, the pure you know, substance. Uh, in uh, the 1950s, Stephen Zara discovered that in Hungary when he couldn't get LSD behind the Iron Curtain. Um, it was then discovered uh, to be uh, in, you know, mammal, lungs, brain, blood, uh, including humans, and it was uh, studied relatively intensely in the 1960s, uh, but then uh, human studies with it and every and every other psychedelic ended in uh, 1970. Um, you know, but uh, you know, basic you know, science studies continued with you know, the psychedelics, uh, the discovery of uh, you know, serotonin receptors, um, especially uh, to the uh, you know the relationship of LSD to serotonin. Um, you know, so. You know, uh, you know, so back in college, I you know, decided I was going to do clinical psychedelic um, drug research. And when I was, you know, uh, when I was looking for a compound to study, uh, I decided to look at DMT. Uh, it's your know, short acting. Uh, it was relatively obscure at the time that I was applying uh, for permission and grants. Uh, the you know, short acting. Uh, the property was important because I knew I'd be doing the studies in a hospital and uh, I wanted to minimize any you know prolonged exposure to stressful circumstances, a stressful environment. For the drug I studied, I began in uh, you know, 1990. And uh, we also began doing some dose finding work with psilocybin the last year, 18 months of my you know, tenure at uh, UNS. Um, and then wrap the studies up in 1995, and I've been writing 
you know, and uh, doing clinical psychiatry since then. Perfect, perfect. And if you could, could you just run us through the the overall paradigm of the study, the overall um, method, and and possibly going to touch on results just while we we kind of summarize the first book so we can move on to the the other two, uh, which are less discussed. Well, the studies were, uh, you know, basic you know psychopharmacology studies. Um, we began looking at normal volunteers who were experienced, uh, you know, psychedelic users, you know, but otherwise completely normal, you know, psychologically stable, um, uh, you know, no history or you know, no, you know, current you know, medical or you know, drug abuse kinds of problems. Um, you know, the first studies that you do with any new drug is to do what's called a you know, dose response project. You give small, medium, large doses as well as placebo. Characterize as many parameters as you can. Um, and in our case, we were looking at ones that were deemed uh, you know, potentially regulated by serotonin. Uh, be, you know, because the classical you know, psychedelic drugs affect you know, serotonin transmission in the brain. You know, so we looked at a slew of endocrine you know, variables, uh, cortisol, prolactin, beta endorphin. Um, we looked at you know, heart rate and you know, blood pressure response, uh, you know, core temperature, pupil diameter. Um, and we also you know, characterized the uh, subjective effects as best we could. Uh, you know, both with you know, careful interviewing after they came down, and also we developed a new rating scale to quantify the, the effects. Uh, so we infused the drug intravenously uh, because uh, it's usually smoked in the field, uh, you know, recreationally uh, or in you know more casual environments, and uh, because the study was funded by the National Institute of uh, Drug Abuse. We needed to, you know, duplicate the uh, experience of the smoked as best we could. Um, so we infused it over about a half a minute uh, into the vein, then flushed the line with some sterile salt water, and uh, effects would begin within a couple of heartbeats, actually. And uh, th you know, those were noted to be a you know, feeling of intense inner. Uh, you know, tension, as it were, um, excitement, agitation, uh, acceleration, uh, which uh, everybody uh, ended up calling the rush. Um, you, you know, the, uh, the visual structure in the room began to break up around the same time, uh, and uh, you know, then with eyes closed, uh, you know, people would dissociate; they would uh, lose awareness of their bodies within maybe a half a minute or a minute. And uh, you know, then they would enter into this world of light, this you know, discarnate world of light, uh, which was you know, full of stuff uh, with which the beings or with which the volunteers interacted. Uh, you know, sometimes this stuff took the you know, form of beings, these intelligent humanoid or other sh you know, shaped uh, you know, figures. Uh, you know, whirling, buzzing, massive, or uh, um, uh, quite intensely saturated colors. Um, in the beginning, there might be a crinkling or a high-pitched, uh, you know, sound as one is leaving one's body. Um, 
you know, the emotional state could be, uh, it was usually ecstatic, but, you know, sometimes it was relatively neutral uh, uh, or, you know, sometimes quite frightening. Uh, yeah, you know, so, you know, the volunteers interacted with these, these things or then, you know, the space uh, asked questions, got answers, had things done to them, you know, you know did things, you know, to that space. Um, you know, the, um, th there was only one volunteer that had the typical white light mystical experience. Um, um, and interestingly enough, you know, he was, you know, somebody with a strong interest in that kind of experience. Uh, other people, you know, came at the study you know, from different perspectives. Um, yeah, you know, so you start coming down at about, you know, five minutes. Uh, you're able to, you know, talk at about 15 or 20. And, you know, then in a half hour, you're drinking tea, answering questionnaires. Um, we did another study after that, seeing if we could develop tolerance to closely spaced repeated dosing of DMT. And we couldn't. Uh, we gave a you know, high dose, uh, you know, four times in the morning, you know, separated by a half hour. Uh, and we determined that, um, you know, there is no tolerance to the psychological effects of DMT. You get as, a, uh, you get as intoxicated the, with the, you know, fourth dose as you do with the first. Um, you know, then we, you know, looked at some other, you know, receptors, which we thought might be um, involved in the DMT effect. Uh, one of the you know, subtypes of uh, the serotonin receptor. Um, and then we started some you know, dose you know, finding work with psilocybin uh, and then started just you know, winding down uh, around you know, 1995. Uh, you know, well, I had gone in, into the research, you know, determined to de you know, discover if uh, you know, DMT was inherently spiritual. You know, did it possess you know pharmacological spirituality, as it were? In other words, if you just gave the drug to people without a lot of preparation, expectations, um, you know, would they have a mystical experience? You know, my theory, you know, was that you know brain levels of DMT in humans you know, might increase at the time of non-drug spiritual states or you know, highly altered states. You know, like mystical experience or alien abductions or near-death states, um, and if giving DMT replicated certain you know, features of those experiences, you know that would uh, support the idea that naturally occurring DMT might play a role in those non-drug you know, so-called states. Um, you know, but we didn't you know, find that uh, with uh, you know minimal preparation, but you know plenty of support. Uh, you know the volunteers just you know, had the trips that they needed uh, or you know, that they wanted even. Um, you know, someone with an experience, uh, with a big interest in the, uh, the near-death near state had one. Uh, a you know, software designer you know, saw you know, the origin of the zeros and the ones you know, coming out of white space. Um, you know, somebody interested in aliens experienced an alien abduction you know, kind of effect. Uh, you know, so it you know wasn't inherently spiritual. It just you know kind of you know shone a spotlight, as it were, on the more or less you know conscious you know contents of the person's pre-existing personality. 
you know, so I got to, you know, the answer to that. And you know, then the, the you know, psychopharmacological model was kind of uh, you know, painting me in a corner. Um, I had to start treating my volumes as large larets, as it were, uh, you know, blocking this receptor, scanning that part of the brain, those kinds of things. You know, so it you know, seemed as if, you know, the benefit was starting to be outweighed you know, by, you know, uh, you know, potential risks or uh, in, in a way, uh, you know, information that wasn't really, you know, relevant uh, to my original interest. Um, so, you know, there was nobody else to, you know, to really help me out at the time. I mean, our work in, on a UNM was, you know, so far off the curve, uh, I really couldn't recruit any, you know, coworkers or colleagues. You know, so, yeah, at a certain point I said, okay, I've done what I wanted to do. I got American research off the ground. Um, and I answered the question about the inherent spirituality of the drug. And then I figured I should, you know, leave while I could. And so for for you, the data suggested then that these experiences were more sub subjective experiences than objective experiences. They were they were creating the mind of the of the volunteer, or they weren't journeying, literally journeying outside of the body, as you just uh, mentioned there. Well, they were determined by the personality of the volunteer. Uh, so you know whether you know that means that their you know, personality determined what their brain generated or if their personality determined what they received from the outside, like an objective, you know, download. Um, you know, so that's, you know, kind of uh, a bit, the big, you know, question, is it internally generated or uh, externally existent? And we're just being able to perceive it now with our brains, you know, receiving characteristics being changed. Um, I just don't think we can find out. Uh, but <laughs> I think, you know, what we, you know, you know but, you know, what we do know, is that our personality and what's in our minds determines uh, what the experiences are like. Mm. In, in answer to the question of why why a human being is is set up to, to have these experiences, what, what is your view on that? Um, well, you know, it would depend on your perspective. If you're of the you know, bottom-up kind of model, you know, neuro, neurotheology, uh, you know, then these experiences can uh, produce some evolutionary ad um, advantage, some, you know, fitness of selection. Um, you know, let's say if you're, if, if you're able to activate your imagination in a way uh, through these, you know, substances, uh, even, you know, naturally through elevated brain DMT on your own, if, you know, such a thing happens, um, you might be more creative. Or you might be able to, uh, you know, problem solve better. Uh, you, you, your perceptual, your perceptual um, apparatus might be more finely tuned, more sensitive. Um, so you know there are you know those you know, kinds of theories. You know the other uh, you know theory is a top-down uh, you know model. Uh, you know that you know DMT exists in order you know for us to communicate with uh, externally existent realities. And it you know, provides the you know, the matrix um, you know, for you know, certain elements of spiritual uh, you know, downloading, the imaginative ones, um, you know, so to speak, you know, the visual effects, auditory effects, emotional. Um, and you know, then your personality you know, needs to extract information. 
on your intellect, you know, needs to understand what the visions represent. Um, you know, I got into the notion of Hebrew biblical prophecy after you know, finishing, um, you know, the DMT work, and uh, I, you know, proposed a, you know, a, a top-down model, you know, theo neurology, where God, um, you know, made us with the ability, you know, to secrete you know, DMT in response to a spiritual download or you know the prophetic experience, um, and you know the visions. Uh, you know, contain, you know, divine information and are, are determined divinely. Um, and you know, then we need to use our intellect, you know, to understand what they mean. You know, the more, excuse me, I, you know, the more you know, confusing question or, you know, pressing question is, you know, why would brain levels of DMT increase at death? And, you know, that was a, you know, theory, you know, that I put out a, a while back in the, in uh, the DMT book. And you know was confirmed last year, uh, you know, by a uh, you know, group of um, you know, DMT researchers in Michigan. Uh, you know that in um, that in the dying rodent, uh, you know, uh, the brain concentrations of DMT and quite uh, increase um, quite strikingly. Uh, you know, so why would that you know, be the case? Uh, um, you know, one of the you know hints is that um, it, um, is that in in a test tube, um, you know, DMT will you know, protect nerve cells from damage caused from low levels of oxygen. You know, so you could speculate that you know DMT is released you know to minimize the you know, brain damage which you know, might occur uh, in a heart attack or a stroke or other. You know, fatal or you know, potentially fatal conditions, uh, but but still that you know begs the question regarding you know why is DMT so psychedelic? Um, you know, couldn't you just you know secrete a, a you know substance which made you feel calm or tranquilized you or was you know warm and fuzzy, uh, you know to help ease the transition you know to dying, you know but instead. Uh, you know, the brain increases the amounts of this incredibly strange hallucinogen. You know, so does that, you know, mean, you know, that the near-death experience is, uh, you know, the, you know, the you know, beginning of, uh, you know, what it's like, uh, you know, without a body? Yeah, I, I mean, the top-down explanation sounds a lot more uh, interesting to me than the bottom-up one. <laughs> um, it's it's a lot more exciting. Let's 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 say that. Uh, I guess coupled with the subjective data as well, um, near-death experience being so similar to the DMT experience, uh, the the studies that uh, that are finding this in rats have there been any human trials yet, or is it even possible? No. Yeah, it is possible. Uh, you know, they would be like at this point, uh, you know, rather invasive studies. I mean, I don't know how many people would volunteer to have a brain biopsy as they're dying. You know, but you know, some people, you know, you might volunteer to do that. Uh, in which case, you could look at brain levels of DMT or activation of the genes which are responsible for DMT synthesis. You know. You know, do they go up in you know, selected areas of the brain? Um, uh, you could give DMT to people that have had an NDE, and you know, compare the two states. You know, somebody could say, "Oh, yeah, that was just like my NDE that occurred in an autom 
um, in uh, in an automobile accident. Um, you know, so those are you know two you know possible studies. You know, there is a a study, um, a survey study done by the group at Imperial College in London, where they gave questionnaires to you know, people that have used DMT, and they gave the same questionnaires to other people, you know, that had had an NDE. And compared them, and they you know found a, a pretty strong resemblance, you know. But another group a few months later published um, a paper which uh, you know pointed at ketamine having a much more um, you know greater resemblance you know with a naturally occurring NDE, you know. So you know the jury's out. Um, I think you know the ultimate study you know will be you know to look at the you know biology of the brain, you know get a brain biopsy uh, as you know people are dying. Um, I suppose you could also put, you know, people on a scanner as they're dying, uh, you know, to determine if there's more DMT, you know, made. Uh, but I don't think we quite have the technology, you know, to, you know, to see if there's more, you know, DMT being produced uh, in the living brain. Rick, can can the um, blood concentration of DMT be measured at the point of death? No. Uh, well, you know, concentrations in the blood are really low, um, and um, you know, we just can't really measure them quite yet. You know, so we need to be more local, uh, you know, like in the brain, um, or else, you know, perhaps uh, other parts of the body make you know DMT you know during death, and you could look at uh, you know the genetic activity. Um, but you know, blood levels, you know, they're just a little too low in the you know, billionth of a gram. You know, per milliliter. Right, I see. Now, I mean, just before we move into um, your work with the Hebrew Bible, I just wanted to cover two things. Number one was um, the androgynous DMT uh, made in the body, contained in, in any foods or anything like that. Um, it, could you speak on that briefly for the androgynous DMT and the findings on that? Well, um, if you swallow DMT, it's broken down in the gut, in the stomach, and in the small intestine. You know, so you could eat a lot of DMT uh, and you won't uh, experience any effects. Um, you know, that's the beauty or the charm or the magic of ayahuasca. Um, it contains a plant with DMT and also one that inhibits the breakdown in the gut. You know, so you can swallow DMT and get an orally active uh, uh, you know, preparation. Uh, you know, there are, you know, foods, especially, you know, plants that contain, you know, DMT. You know, but if you eat them, you know, by themselves, uh, they're not going to have any effect because of the gut. Right. And the, the second question uh, that came from uh, some of our viewers was regarding the pineal gland and its its importance in, in this whole mystery. The pineal gland. Yeah. You know, that's really been, uh, it's been <laughs> like a tar baby, uh, you know, you, or, you know, like a huge, you know, ball in your mouth. You can't swallow it. You can't spit it out. Uh <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, you know, once upon a well, you, you know, when I first got interested in you know scientifically studying consciousness, I learned about the pineal gland from Jim Fadiman at Stanford um, when I was 20 years old. You know, Jim you know, was uh, you know, working at the School of Engineering um, as a you know, consulting psychologist, and I was an undergraduate. And you know, Jim and I met one day, and he said, "Look into the pineal gland." You know, this was 1972, um, and I said, "What's that?" And so I started to, you know, read up on it, and it seemed 
um, you know, mysterious, you know, biologically, you know, but uh, this whole, you know, mythology or esoteric and physiology had built up around it over thousands of years in the East and the West. Um, and it was supposed to be the location anatomically or energetically of the highest possible you know, religious state. You know, so I thought, well, I wonder if, the, if you know, the pineal you know, gland, you know, biologically can be determined to, you know, be involved in, you know, non-drug religious experience. Um, you know, so I started to think, well, you know, maybe DMT is made in the pineal. Uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence, you know, circumstantial evidence, uh, you know, concentrations of, uh, you know, necessary ingredients are quite high in, in the pineal. Uh, you know, the enzymes, the genes that make the enzymes are, are you know, quite active in the pineal. You know, so it, it only made sense that, you know, you know, that the DMT machinery is going on in the pineal gland. Um, and the group in Ann Arbor, Gimo Borgigian, uh, you know, looked at this uh, in 2013, I believe. Um, and, uh, you know, they discovered, you know, DMT in the living rodent pineal gland. Uh, but this paper that came out last year uh, from the same lab indicated that uh, it's, you know, the, um, indicated that it isn't, you know, the pineal gland that's making the, you know, DMT, it's the brain, uh, which in a way is a lot more interesting. Um, and it, you know, turned out, you know, that the study which, you know, demonstrated DMT in the pineal gland um, used a probe that went through the brain in order to get to the pineal and snagged some brain you know, tissue on the way in or out. And uh, you know, that was you know, the source um, of the DMT that they found in that study. But still, uh, you know, uh, they really worked hard to explain why pineal gland does not make DMT, because you would think it would, you know, just you know, based on you know, the biology. You know, so they you know, kind of speculated about you know, movement of, you know, precursors from one enzyme to the other and, you know, so forth. Uh, but um, I don't think the story is yet, you know, shut on the pineal gland and DMT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of people looking at it from uh, different ways and, and, and who really knows conclusively. Um, so moving into, into your later works now, and what for me is... Um, the real exciting bit because it gets a little bit existential and gets a little bit um i think it's 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 from you rick strassman and not only the the science and so in your individual research and then obviously going on into your life into this autobiography that you've you've written but first of all could we go through what a what was the inspiration behind DMT and a soul of prophecy? And, and maybe you could just talk a little bit about your key, what that book is exploring. Yeah, well, there were two, uh, well, you know, there was a, a confluence of at least, you know, two major streams that, you know, led me to write that book. You know, one was that I didn't really have a model to understand people's experiences on DMT from my study. But, you know, uh, the volunteers and I were both expecting these white light, mystical, unitive, ego, content-free uh, states. And that wasn't the case. It was very busy. 
and a lot of interaction. And you know, the personality, the ego, you know, the observing self was maintained, even strengthened. Uh, you know, there was you know, the passage of time. There was space. Yeah, you know, you know. So in a way, it couldn't have been, you know, more contradictory to my expectations and those of the volunteers. Um, you know, so that was the content. Uh, you know, wasn't consistent with my original hypothesis. Um, the truth, you know, value too didn't quite you know fit in. Uh, or the explanatory models that I brought to bear didn't quite, you know, fit in. Um, you know, the, you know, this is your brain on drugs didn't quite fit. Uh, you know, this is, you know, repressed impulses and conflicts being expressed uh, as the result of the drug. Uh, it's just your mind reacting on the way to the formless ultimate, you know, highest possible state. You know, they all, um, you know, all of those three models, uh, the ones I brought to bear, uh, the psychopharmacologic, the you know, psychoanalytic, and the Zen Buddhist, you know, they all posited the you know, basic unreality of what people had just undergone. But the hallmark of the DMT experience is that it's more real than real. It's the most real thing they've ever encountered. Yeah. You know, so I would you know, kind of interact with my volunteers and I'd say, oh, yeah, it's this or, oh, yeah, it's that. And they'd say, no, it's what it was. You know, it was the strangest, most compelling thing that I've ever uh, apprehended in my entire life. Um, so it was, you know, the content of the experiences um, and the striking reality sense. Uh, and, you know, you know, scientific, you know, theories were interesting from a mechanistic point of view might be dark matter parallel universes you know brain activation of you know this or that um but it didn't really address the more important issue to me anyway which is if you you know have the experiences what do they mean what are they good for what kind of information is available in them what kind of you know tools are available to extract information are you a better person? Can you communicate such experiences in a way that improves the world? You know, so the other, you know, major discipline that's looked at highly altered states in a systematic way are, are the religious, uh, you know, traditions. And I had um, exhausted, you know, the Buddhist one, you know, which is the other uh, stream which you know, kind of, you know, pushed me into the Hebrew Bible. You know, my Zen community, you know, didn't like me, you know, talking about you know, psychedelics and you know, Buddhism. You know, so we you know, parted ways um, at a certain point, and I was kind of bereft of a spiritual tradition. I had been with this Buddhist group for over 20 years. You know, so uh, I kind of stumbled upon some Jewish, you know, books uh, when I was wandering through a New Age bookstore. Uh, in this small town in Washington where I was living at the time. And I always like to, you know, read the, you know, well, yeah, you know, once I um, encounter a new you know, thinker or um, a new discipline, I like to go to the original literature. And when it comes to, you know, Judaism, it's, you know, the Hebrew Bible, you know, the you know, fundamental text, you know, both of it and of Christianity, basically. You know, not, you know, quite as much, you know, for Islam. You know, but, you know, without the Hebrew Bible, there would be no Christianity. Uh, you know, so it's a powerful book. It's been around a long time, and it you know, presented a view 
or a spiritual worldview, which I became you know, curious about at a certain point. You know, so I started, you know, reading the Hebrew Bible, uh, retaught myself, you know, biblical Hebrew, uh, you know, found the classical commentaries you know, from you know, the Middle Ages, uh, you know, translated, of course. And, uh, you know, then after a while, you know, the notion of the prophetic state began to dawn on me. Um, and but the prophetic state is any spiritual experience recounted in the text in the Hebrew Bible. It, it, it could be unusual courage. It could be inspiration to sing or to write poetry, uh, you know, to rule, to make you know, judgments. It could be, you know, full on visions of God and angels. Um, it could be out of body experiences, you know, visions of flames and angels and uh, flight through space and uh, clairvoyance and clairaudience. Uh, or it could be just a you know dream that comes true later on. You know, so there are stages of the prophetic experience. It isn't only you know foretelling, or you know predicting. Uh, you know, which is more uh, you know which is more of an artifact of the you know translation of the Hebrew word for the prophet into Greek, which was the first you know non-Hebrew you know, version of the Bible. You know, because you know the Greeks were interested in divining. You know, like an altered state would help you divine. Uh, in in other words, you know, to de, you know to determine the um, you know the future. Um, you know, so when the Greeks began to to you know, translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek, you know, that's you know the way you know they translated you know, the Hebrew word you know for the prophet, uh, uh, you know, seer or diviner, you know, foreteller. You know, but it it you know, can be any spiritual experience. You know, so yeah. I started to, you know, look at, you know, if there are stages of you know, prophecy, you know, from, you know, from high to low, you know, what are they like? And they're very much like the DMT effect, uh, you know, phenomenologically anyway. Um, you know, the visions and the voices, you know, the physical experiences, you know, the emotional ones. Um, yeah, so, um, and, you know, the prophetic experience is the most profound and real encounter of the you know, figure's life. I mean, it's, it's, you know, revolutionary. It completely captivates them. It sweeps away ongoing everyday reality, which is another hallmark uh, of the DMT experience. Um, and it's, you know, considered real. It's considered the you know, hallmark, the, you know, highest point of spiritual evolution. Uh, you know, so it isn't, you know, disregarded as, uh, you know, something else. It's the, uh, you know, it's the you know, peak experience uh, within, you know, the Western, um, you know, spiritual tradition. Uh, you know, so I, I, you know, compared the, you know, phenomenology of the two states, the DMT state and the prophetic state, and there's a really striking overlap. Um, you know, so that confirmed anyway, you know, that I was, you know, kind of on the right um, you know, track. You know, the main, you know, difference, obviously, is the enduring, you know, nature of the message of the prophetic experience, as opposed to uh, anything comparable uh, in uh, the message of the you know, psychedelic state or of the DMT state. Uh, you know, so that, you know, got me, you know, thinking about, you know, you know, so where does the um, information reside? You know, why didn't the DMT, you know, volunteers, you know, have experiences with the same uh, impact as you know the prophetic experiences as recorded in the text, you know so that you know got me to start speculating about you know different you know, mechanisms of action. 
but uh, you know, the, the bottom line with, with regard to DMT and the prophetic state is it got me convinced or you know, pointed to the role of DMT in the imagination. Um, and you know, by the imagination, um, I mean any you know, mental act, um, activity which is you know, non-abstract. Um, you know, so that's, you know, uh, your perceptions, your feelings, your emotions, your physical sensations, um, you know, those kinds of things. And, you know, that's, you know, where the DMT state and, you know, the prophetic state overlapped. It is with respect to the intellect, you know, the rational, you know, mind, the, you know, part of the mind that abstracts, that, uh, that, you know, deals in, you know, thoughts, you know, rather than, you know, perceptions. You know, that's um, you know that isn't as impacted by DMT um, as compared to the imagination. Yes, and for for the psychedelic experience, in, in comparison to the prophetic experience, there are many that that do end up making some very life changing decisions or adopt a higher sense of morality within their life. Did you find overlap there as well with with that the re, the resulting lifestyle changes? I mean. Well, when you're speaking of the you know, full-on you know, prophetic experience, you know the canonical one, Ezekiel, Isaiah, you know Moses, Abraham, uh, you know those all in, well, you know so those all um, involve a mission. Mm. Um, you're assigned a mission, uh, and you know that's to you know to. Uh, you know, communicate the divine word to the community, um, you know, no matter what the consequences, which are often, or, you know, can be dire, you know, for the prophet. Um, you know, so I don't really think, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm you know, thinking about were there lifestyle changes uh, induced by prophetic experience in, you know, in you know, biblical figures and I can't really you know think of any other than a complete you know revolution in you know the person's life you know they became a prophet uh, you know rather than becoming a vegetarian mm. did you find any evidence in in your research that there was any uh, chemically induced prophetic uh, message i e were they using uh, any form of DMT, the, the, the acacia bush, um, Moses's burning bush, of course. Did you find any link there that these could have been induced states? Um, you know, there just really isn't any evidence in the text for the use of external agents on exogenous you know, substances. Uh, you know, it you know, could be the acacia was a burning bush uh, and, you know, DMT was released. But, you know, that was just Moses um, one time. Uh, and, you know, there were you know, theories about the ergot alkaloids and, you know, manna, perhaps. But, you know, there is no evidence of you know, people tripping out on the manna. It just, you know, sustained them for food. Um, you know, the only, only you know, possible uh, you know, reference is, you know, the holy incense, which the high priest burned on the Day of Atonement once a year in the Holy of Holies. And if you read the verse in, um, in Leviticus, you can translate it in you know, such a way as it indicates that the high priest you know, saw God 
through the agency of the incense. But still, that's one person once a year. Uh, so I think if you you know do away with a uh, you know, search for exogenous agents and instead look at the possible production of naturally occurring you know, DMT. Uh, I think that's a bit more of a parsimonious explanation. Right, and and your so so the theory is that God communicates with man um, when when God chooses to, uh, but we can induce glimpses of this with uh, the chemicals. Would that be right, or could you elaborate on it? Or yeah, um, well, I think if you smoke DMT or you take DMT in and you have a you know, prophecy, you know, a, uh, you know, an, an experience that shares, you know, features with a prophetic state. Um, it's, you know, more of a, a facsimile. It's, you know, it's, you know, more of a mimetic, you know, that's, you know, where I, you know, see a stumbling block in discussions of, you know, giving you know psychedelics and they you know cause a mystical experience. Mm. Um, you know, early on the Hopkins groups uh, described the states as you know mystical like. You know, but as you know, time um, has gone on. You know, they've been emboldened and just you know call them you know, mystical experiences. You know, but that's the you know theological notion, and there's really you know even though there's you know phenomenological resemblance. Um, I mean, you could, you know, look at a very good, you know, duplicate, a, you know, very good, you know, replication of a beautiful piece of art, a painting or a sculpture, and it's just as inspiring, or almost just as inspiring. Very difficult to tell from the real thing, um, but they're different. One is the original, one is a facsimile. But you know, that isn't, you know, to say, you know, that, you know, that there is no impact of experiencing, you know, the facsimile. It can move you. It could heal you. It could do all kinds of things. Uh, but I think to you know, you know, uh, you know, to equate the two because of scores on rating scales, uh, and perhaps you know, descriptions of the clinical effect. Uh, I think that's you know, uh, you know, that could be you know, problematic. You know, so it's you know the same thing uh, with you know the prophetic state. Uh, it is you know like a duplicate or effects only but still it is it isn't without impact uh you can be quite moved you could uh even start to preach uh you could start to heal you could uh you know change your life around you know for the better or you know for the worse um but um yeah you know they can have the you know, same profound effect you know but the mechanism um, is different you know the way they come about you know, the nature, the location of uh, the information that is, uh, you know, revealed and extracted. And and so, in in your view, is is then the God we're talking about the the Abrahamic God? Is, is it the arbiter of these experiences? I mean, are, are we talking about in in your view in this book a chosen a chosen few that are given this this uh, prophetic vision, or is it a random happening? Well, you, you got to be careful there, uh, you know, and you know, some people have been careful, and you know, some people have you know, stepped into the controversy. Um, you know, there are um, a couple of issues um, at hand here. 
you know, one is the whole, you know, notion of is there still prophecy? Um, and, you know, the rabbis a long time ago, over 2,000 years ago, declared an end, you know, to prophecy, you know, that it was no longer happening. Right. Uh, but if you, if, if, you, if you study the you know, circumstances, you know, further declaration, it was as much cultural and political as it was, you know, theological. And they, you know, bent over backwards to explain, you know, you know, why did God decide to withhold prophecy? You know, but I, I don't think it's, you know, uh, um, you know, biologically defensible. Um, and, and the, you know, biological, you know, part is uh, is upheld, you know, by the more, you know, philosophically inclined of the medievalists, especially Maimonides. Um, who has a great, you know, line in his book saying, you know, God does not withhold from the worthy. You know, so if you've, you know, done all the things that you need to do to become a prophet, it ought to devolve upon you. You ought to be able to experience your prophecy. You know, so Maimonides, well, yeah, uh, uh, oh, man, it's universally accessible. Um, if you have a brain, if you have an imagination, if you have an intellect, and you, you know, train yourself, uh, you're um, you're virtuous. You occupy yourself with Torah study. You you know master the you know, sciences and the arts. Uh, you know then you ought to be able to experience the prophetic state. Uh, yeah, and you know that's across the board. It's a universal thing. Uh, you know so Maimonides you know had to you know come up with a miracle. I mean, say it's the miracle of withholding of the prophetic experience. Uh, you know, everybody ought to be able to experience a uh, prophecy, you know, but uh, it, it's you know, been withheld and you know, God knows why or, or only God knows why, you know, so it's you know, complicated. Uh, if you look at the outskirts of you know, Judaism, you know, Kabbalah, uh, you know, Hasidism, uh, there's plenty of you know, prophecy. You know, the masters uh, you know, fly to heaven, uh, experience trips, come back down and uh, teach, um, you know, so, you know, but it isn't really, you know, uh, what would be mainstream, uh, uh, you know, traditional Judaism. It, it still kind of inhabits, you know, the periphery, um, you know, but, you know, that uh, is a bit of a uh, you know, caveat against the notion of, you know, prophecy ending. You know, whether everybody can become a prophet is also pretty controversial because, you know, that gets into, you know, racial questions. You know, one of the great, um, you know, medieval um, you know, philosophers, uh, you know, Judah Halevi, you know, wrote a book, you know, called the Kuzari in 1200 or so, 1100. Um, and in that book, he states that only a Jewish person or a Jewish, you know, convert or, you know, well, you know, the children of a Jewish you know, convert, you know, it's only a, a a born Jew or this or the um or the child of a you know, convert to Judaism, uh, you know, could experience the prophetic state. Um, and it, it only could occur in the land of Israel. You know, so it starts to get you know kind of you know particular. Yeah, um, and controversial as opposed to universal um, at that point. Very controversial. Um, yeah, you. Know, you know, so if you look, you know, carefully, there are, you know, pros and cons within the tradition. You know, uh, you know Maimonides, 
uh, expresses it as um, as universally you know, potential, but uh, you know for whatever reason isn't available across the board. And uh, you know, and uh, and you know Judah, and so well, um, and uh, you know Judah, um, you know the Levite, uh, you know describes it as uh, still possible, but under you know conditions which at the time you know no longer existed. Uh, you know, people couldn't go to Israel, or you know, very few, you know, Jewish people went to Israel. You know, but if you did, uh, you were you know capable of experiencing uh, you know the prophetic state. Yes, it, it seems uh, every serious conversation uh, I have about psychedelics with multiple people in the field from multiple disciplines, whether it be Buddhism, Hinduism, people working with uh, LSD seriously or DMT seriously, uh, we get to this word God. And I ask, and I have asked now hundreds of people, what is their personal definition of this? And I'd like to ask you if that's okay, Rick. How, how are you defining it? Uh, I, we did actually touch on this in our private call, uh, how many people have a concept of a oneness, uh, of a whole, of, of the individual is God, uh, a microcosm of God, uh, of, of the unity of all. What is it for you? Um, well, it you know, took me you know, some time to get my head around the notion of God. Uh, the you know, second word in Genesis is God. In the beginning, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, you, you know, so you know there are a couple of you know, names of God in the Hebrew Bible. You, uh, you know, two in particular. Uh, you know, Y H uh, V H and Elohim. Um, you know there are um, a handful of others, but you know they don't um, appear uh, you know with anything you know close to that frequency. Um, you know I first got a foothold on the notion of God from you know my Buddhist uh, studies, uh, and you know that had to do with the idea of cause and effect. Uh, you know you know the Buddha taught you know everything which is now has you know precedence. You know there are you know causes to all effects. Um, everything which is an effect has got causes. Um, so if that's the case, then you know cause and effect has got a beginning and a middle and an end as well. Uh, you know you know when did you know cause and effect begin? You know was it always in effect or was it created you know like everything else is? You know so. You know that's one of the questions which is discouraged in, in you know Buddhist you know training. You know like you know what you know was you know before anything. You know that's you know called one of the questions which isn't conducive to your enlightenment. You know which is the kind of question that, that I'm you know drawn to. Like if you're not supposed to think about it, like you know why not? Uh, yeah, you, you know so I you know, began to think about well, you know who you know who created or you know what created cause and effect. And, you know, what sustains cause and effect? You know, so, you know, the other thing about, you know, cause and effect is that, you know, classically, it's, you know, taught to be a completely, you know, neutral, you know, value neutral, you know, phenomena, the relentless, you know, turning of the wheel of karma. You know, you know, you know, but if you look at reality, at, you know, cause and effect, there, there, you know, seems to be a, a, a quality to cause and effect. It you know, seems to be encouraging certain kinds of behavior, 
and it seems to be discouraging other types of behavior. Uh, it's you know discouraging you from being angry. It encourages you to be loving. You know, so who determined the quality of cause and effect? You know, why is cause and effect arranged in the way that it is to encourage certain things and discourage others? You know, so you know that you know led me to the idea of you know God as the creator and sustainer of cause and effect. You know, so God, you know, determined you know the direction that you know cause and effect goes, and you know created it, and you know keeps it going. You know, so that was my you know fundamental you know definition of of God. You know, defining you know God's activities. You know how you know of God. You know how you can intuit or extrapolate or infer. You know the you know the existence and the nature of God. And do you conceptualize that as something external to yourself or, or in a Hindu sense, in a kind of Atman sense? Uh, are you a, a fractal of it? Are, are, are you, in, in essence, it, as long with everybody else, of course? Um, no, no. I mean, I'm a you know, crazy dualist. I, I mean, you know, to think of yourself as God, I, I mean, please, you know, think about it. You know, did you create the heavens and the earth? Mm. Uh, you know, did you create all the stars? Do you things, you know, you know, hanging together? You know, did, you know, did you create cause and effect? Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so I, I think we could, you know, uh, you know, consider ourselves as you know God's you know, creations, mm. and we possess a soul. You know, we possess a soul. You know, which is divine, um, implanted by God, and then you know taken back by God when we die. You know, but there's a you know there's a huge difference between you know between us and God. Uh, yeah, so it kind of you know drives me crazy when you know, people say you know we're God, I am God, and I'd say please, you know you're God, you know look around. <laughs> I bet that uh, is quite unpopular in some circles, Rick. <laughs> oh, you know, a, a, a you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was invited to speak at a you know non-duality event, or yeah. like a month ago, <laughs> and uh, I spoke to the organizer and I said, you know, if you, you know, if I speak, I'm just gonna, you know, trash you know the notion of non-duality. Uh, I don't believe it. I think it's a you know dangerous illusion, uh, and you know this is what I think. You know, so, you know. So she said, "Well, you know, uh, you know, maybe you know some other time." <laughs> so I said, "You know, fine. I'm, uh, yeah. It's not kumbaya. I wouldn't really you know contribute you know to that ethos. Uh, yeah. You know. So yeah. It, you know, within the psychedelic community, uh, it's a bit of a tough." Uh, you know, it's a, almost a hard sell. But Can I ask uh, you um, briefly you know, just, okay. just there about, uh, you, you mentioned that it not, the idea of non-duality is potentially dangerous. Could you just expand on that a little bit? Um, it, you know, it, uh, it is a statement about a completely different level of reality than that which we inhabit. Mm. Um you know, I spoke with a Tibetan 
uh, you know, teacher, I'm a llama up in you know, Victoria, you know, Canada, where I you know, lived for a while. Um, I was having you know, marital uh, 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 you know, problems at the time. And uh, I was able you know, to arrange a you know, private audience. And I said, isn't it all one? You know, why are we not getting along? I mean, aren't we, you know, basically the same? And he said, you know, that's, you know, the ultimate, you know, that's, you know, the, the ultimate level of reality. And we aren't there. Uh, you know, there's the relative and, you know, there's the absolute. And he said, it's 99.99%, you know, the relative. You know, so if you want to pretend it's all one, you could, but you're, you know, denying the fact that we live in a relative universe, a, a relative world. You know, in you know, it is interactive. We are interacting. We're not merging with everything all the time. We're interacting with things all the time. So, I think the you know problem is you know how to understand you know differences and you know how to understand uh, um, in interaction. Uh, you know, so that. I think is, you know, where the non-dual state is alluring. Uh, you don't have to think. If the non-dual state is free of thought, you don't have to think. And most people are really confused about things. You know, but it isn't a question of not thinking. It's a question of thinking better. You know, you, uh, you, know, uh, you know, thinking along the lines of things that are more in line with the nature of reality rather than just our fantasies or imaginations which, you know, bump into reality and they stress us out so we want to be in a non-dual, uh, you know, thoughtless condition. Now, ha has your research with DMT um, strengthened or kind of, yeah, strengthened your convictions, your spiritual convictions uh, from, from the evidence that you've acquired through your experience, your time working on it and with it, uh, its effect on the participants, uh, has this affected you personally, spiritually? Has it kind of convinced you further of a divine nature of, of the cosmos? Um, well, I think my work with DMT and the existence of DMT, you know, led me uh, to a spiritual worldview that I'm developing and studying now. Um, as opposed to it convincing me of the reality of the spiritual world and its importance, if you know that makes you know sense. It you know I it's I suppose you know DMT was the you know, finger pointing at the moon. Uh, you know it isn't the moon, but it got me interested in the moon, um, and uh, it you know pointed me you know toward the Hebrew Bible and you know the prophetic experience. You know, but it isn't. Uh, it was just a you know, very striking signpost. Um, you know, so even though I still am current in the field, I consult, I teach, uh, I do, you know, this and that, um, I review, you know, papers uh, for consideration for publication um, in you know, scientific journals. Um, you, you know, the meat of what my you know, life is about is studying the text and, you know, trying to understand um, what it means, and uh, you know, thinking about that, you know, writing about that, talking about it. Yeah, and I think it, it takes us quite nicely into your latest book, Joseph Levy Escapes Death. Um, now, I actually listened to this book via uh, audio, which is the, what we're going to be giving away to one of our listeners as well. I defined it as a autobiographical medical 
black comedy. <laughs> that was my best way of uh, defining it. <laughs> it was, it was um, at times uh, very, uh, very funny. Um, if, if you get the sense of humor, like it, it's, it's a very, it's a dark comedy. And um, I, I found it, I found it very funny. And what I found it was, it was deeply um, humbling in a way, because when we imagine our death, we imagine that we're going to have this beautiful drama where all the family stand around the bed and we say our goodbyes and it's all beautiful and dramatic and, and romanticized. But but this book, which catalogues your potential near death, uh, is not as glamorous or romantic as that. In fact, it's pretty um, crude at times. Um, so, yeah, that, that was my review. And so if you could tell us a bit about the inspiration for it. And I think it, by the way, Rick, as well, it's it's so it gives us an insight into your mind. I felt like I was in your mind for a few hours. Well, sure. Well, so how did you like the narrator? Oh, I thought he I thought fantastic. Yeah, he 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 spoke in that kind of dry, slow, dragging <laughs> uh, voice, which gave it a lot of a lot of character, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. I'm quite happy with you know how it turned out. Um, well, you know, the inspiration were was, uh, you know, true life events. Uh, I came down with pneumonia in 2014 and, uh, you know, was admitted, you know, to the local community hospital <laughs> and I was just manhandled. I mean, I was manhandled. Uh, and, you know, then I went home and developed a you know, super bug, you know, diarrhea for six weeks where I lost 15 pounds and, uh, you know, nobody know what to and, you know, nobody knew what to do. You know, so um, I got over it and, uh, you know, just spent, you know, nine months recovering. Uh, so, you know, that was the inspiration for the story. I, you know, changed the names and the places and the genders and the professions and all that of a you know, number of the you know, circumstances of the book. Uh, but it's all, you know, based on a true story. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, you know, based on a true story as, you know, seen through the perspective of a caricature or an amplification of certain, uh, you know, certain aspects of you know, my personality, uh, you know, medical minded, uh, introspective, you know, psychologically, you know, minded, you know, kind of anxious, you know, kind of entitled, uh, confused, uh, you know, grasping on, you know, to whatever, you know, concepts or beliefs I could, uh, you know, hang on to at the time. Uh, yeah, you know, fighting for my life uh, for a good couple of months. Uh, yeah, and uh, the, you know, you know, the two, you know, lowest you know points of both the pneumonia and of the you know, superbug. Yeah, you know, they were uh, kind of disgusting, uh, or at least not dramatic. You know, the pneumonia, my blood pressure was falling. I was going into shock. You know, and you know nobody you know really paid attention. They just you know, kind of ignored me. Uh, yeah, you know, so it was you know it, it was kind of like you know the lights were dimming. You know the you know the volume of my life was being turned down. Um, it wasn't you know psychedelic at all. I suppose if I had you know died, uh, there may have been a period where it was you know DMT like, but uh, it was anything but. It was like a major downer. Um, and uh, you know when I was struggling with, uh, you know, superbug. Uh, yeah, I was just kind of, you know, fading away as opposed to anything spectacular. And, uh, you know, I was alone in both of those, uh, you know, conditions. Uh, you know, so I, 
you know, really had to rally, you know, like what's actually, you know, sustaining me, uh, you know, who's helping me or what's helping me. Uh, so, uh, you know, that was, I think, a opportunity to, you know, kind of strengthen my faith and, uh, you know, gratitude, you know, you know, you know, toward the, you know, creator and uh, the sustainer of cause and effect, you know, like, you know, thank you, God, I'm still alive. Yeah. Yeah, and one of my main questions uh, for this that I have written here is, uh, w was it uh, life-changing? I, I realize the character was an amplification of, of your traits. He's, he's, not, he's not an overly likable character, if you don't mind me saying. No, he's pretty prickly. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it made me a little bit um, cautious of the interview, to be honest. I thought, is he going to be like this in, in, in real life? And you're not. It's, it's very, very different. Uh, like you say, it's an amplification of this um, uh, melancholy. That's how, that's how I, I, I heard it. Well, yeah, and quite funny too, you know. I, you know, I'm a pretty funny guy, you know. But it, you know, requires a, you know, certain, you know, stance to appreciate, you know, my humor. You know, so I think you know people, you know, without a you know sensitive humor, do struggle with that book. Um, they, you know, find the guy you know thoroughly unpleasant, as opposed to just you know partially unpleasant, but also kind of funny. So, um. Certainly funny. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, but 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 you know, um, you know, some people are incapable of appreciating you know the humor in the book, you know, which is kind of an interesting you know psychological you know profiling or you know test of you know some sort. You know, if if you give the, the book to a friend and they say that was not funny, you can kind of you know categorize them as a you know particular type. Um, well, you know, last year, Graham Hancock and I were having dinner and, you know, Graham read the book uh, like a, a, you know, a, a you know, few weeks before. And at a certain point, you know, during dinner, he, you know, stopped, you know, looked at me in the eye and he said, what's the difference between you and Joseph Levy? <laughs> and uh, I said, I'm a nicer guy. You know, I'm a nicer guy than Joseph Levy. So, you know, that was my, uh, you know, three word answer or, you know, four word answer. Yeah, and I noticed within the book as well, you did sprinkle in. I think you only mentioned it once, DMT, but ayahuasca you mentioned it multiple times. You did you did sprinkle in a little bit of that too. Um, is it something, Yeah, I, I don't want to go too personal. I know that you do talk about your personal experiences now, but uh, it, when you're that close to death, do you, do you not feel kind of pulled to use a psychedelic to kind of touch base with where you're going, to take away the anxiety, to... To, to balance, did you not feel that? I, I I almost thought in the book you were going to describe a scene um, where that happened, but what kind of scene? Well, I I thought you were going to drink ayahuasca or or uh, have a, a mushroom session or something like that in in order to kind of get your your psychology right. You did mention your Buddhist practice in in the book, and you kind of went in into depth in your thoughts of of where you were spiritually. Uh, but you didn't end up um, having any uh, psychedelic sessions or healing sessions, anything like that. You know, during the you know, very you know weak part of you know my recovery, I was just too frail. Um, I didn't want to you know take any chances. You know, after all, I'm you know not in my you know twenties or thirties or you know even fifties anymore. Um, yeah, I'm. Um, 
you know, I just wanted to, you know, to, you know, feel, yeah, it's a bit hard to describe what my motivation, well, you know, I could describe what I was doing at the time, you mm. know, to recover. Uh, I, I was, you know, immersed in books. Uh, you know, that was my spiritual practice was, was to read, you know, so I was just, you know, reading about the Holocaust because, you know, it was like a, like um, I had intimations of this is what it's you know, like to die in a concentration camp. You're, you're by yourself, you're ignored, you're taunted, uh, you're just kind of, you know, fading away. Mm. Um, you know, so being Jewish, you know, what's, you know, the paradigmatic, you know, wasting away experience of this generation anyway, um, as the Holocaust, you know, so I started reading Holocaust literature, you know, that you know, led me to, you know, the anti-Semitism literature, which, you know, led me to, you know, Christianity. Um, and, uh, you know, the commentators, you know, the medieval commentators, I was just, you know, you know reading them. Uh, their understanding of the text and of life, you know. So I was accompanied by all these Jewish ideas or anti-Jewish ideas, you know. But it was an examination of my faith, or you know, kind of uh, a swimming in my faith. Like, you know, I've you know taken you know plenty of psychedelics, and uh, uh, I guess I didn't think they would provide the same kind of, you know, meat on the bones as uh, what I was doing at the time. Um, yeah, you know, so, uh, the, you know, this last year, um, I developed an injury to my arm. And, you know, my massage, you know, therapist you know, said, well, you know, maybe you should trip, uh, you know, get to the bottom of it. Mm. Um, you know, but I haven't. You know, but I haven't. Uh, I've just worked on it more, you know, gradually, more consciously, more slowly, uh, you know, more, you know, feeling wise. Uh, so it, you know, could be as, you know, as I'm getting older, uh, I, I'm more appreciative of the slow and steady wins the race than the, uh, you, you know, break things open um, and have a, you know, peak experience to, you know, shine light on the underlying, you know, the underlying issues. Um, you know, that's not to say, that I'm, you know, not interested in you know, tripping again, but the you know circumstances would need to be, you know, they need to be ideal. Mm. Um, and I live alone and in a uh, a small Christian community, so, uh, and you know, friends in yeah, and it's you know hard to travel, you know, nowadays, you know, so, uh, you know, the opportunity has not quite materialized yet. I mean, just a quick caveat before we uh, nip back to that book, but you, one of your first experiences, I think I, I heard, was with Terence McKenna. Is that correct? With your first exposures with DMT. Yeah, my first big DMT experience w um, was with Terence. I think, you know, 1986. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I just, you know, given a talk on the pineal gland and DMT and, uh, you know, Terence was in the audience. And he you know, came up to me afterwards and he said, you want to try some DMT, <laughs> um, you know, get some experiential, uh, you know, firsthand knowledge of the drug, you know, so, you know, what am I going to say? No, I'm busy. So uh, I said, for sure. Yeah. You know, so, you, you know, Terrence, you know, supervised my first uh, experience uh, with you know, DMT. Yeah, it was a pretty mind altering, life altering, completely unexpected uh, experience. Um, you know, I, I was, I smoked it in a joint, 
um, and you know laid down after three four big hits. Yeah, and um, you know there was this you know uh, a a you know raging you know, waterfall of flaming colors out of which emerged these beings about you know three to four feet tall. You know maybe half a dozen of them. You know they looked like aliens. You know like you know the bald you know the bald headed uh, you know childlike physique. Um, and uh, they started to chirp at me or to uh, you know sing song to me. You know now do you see? Now do you see? Now do you see? Over and over and over again. And, and uh, I was just kind of slack jawed. My you know, mouth was you know gaping. Uh, yeah. You know so you know they you know, repeated that over and over for you know however long and uh you know then they you know then they you know disappeared you know back into the waterfall things you know faded um i opened up you know my eyes you know terence is there my you know friends were in the room with me yeah so uh beautiful i decided well yeah it was it was beautiful and i you know decided at that you know moment i'm gonna look at dmt you know i've been thinking about it you know this is the you know, confirmation that I'm on the right track, you, you know, so like a year later, you know, maybe two years later, um, I was you know, driving home from Canada uh, and stopped and uh, uh, stopped off at, you know, Kat um, and Terrence's uh, you know, place in uh, Marin. And, uh, you know, we were talking about, you know, my melatonin study and it was you know, kind of dead ending. And he said, well, you know, you need to study DMT, uh, you know, so we, uh, Spent a whole afternoon up in his, uh, you know, library loft, and uh, we just, you know, brainstormed, you know, for the afternoon, and uh, we decided, well, give DMT to your friends, have the war on drugs, you know, fund it, and, uh, you know, take it from there. <laughs> you, know, so, you know, so that's what, you know, basically I ended up doing. <laughs> the master plan. It was going straight into the lion's den. That's the, the thing we had to decide to just not shy away from it. Mm, yeah. And and then coming, just coming back to, to the book, you went through such a difficult time with that, with nearly dying and whatnot. Has it made you rethink about your actual death? You know, we, we can plan our death to some extent. And has it made you put a plan in, in place as much as that can be achieved or... To, to maybe go about it another way, or do we really have any choice? I don't know. Well, you know, we die like we live, right? Uh, you know, if you're alone, you die alone. Uh, if you've got um, a you know, large you know, social network, uh, you know, chances are um, you'll die you know, surrounded by, you know, your friends and family. You know, but, you know, Dogen, uh, the, you know, the uh, you know, Japanese you know, Zen you know, teacher, yeah. Uh, you know, there's a you know line in uh, you know Zazen rules. Uh, you know the instructions for doing meditation. Uh, you know nobody knows by the side of what road you'll drop. <laughs> you know more or less. Uh, you know so you know we can you know, plan everything. You know live our you know lives, stack the deck in the way that we you know hope for you know things to end. But uh, still, it's as much um, you know unpredictable as controllable. You know, I, you know, like after I recovered, I got my, you know, ducks in a row a bit more, updated my will and power of attorney, you know, got an executor for my trust, established a trust actually, um, you know, like a living trust. Um, and 
you know, um, I got into you know psychotherapy um, as I was getting better to understand what the heck just happened to me, mm. and you know how do I you know prevent anything like that you know, from happening again. Uh, um, yeah, you know, so think about you know my death. Anytime I get a cold or feel a bit under the weather, I have you know flashbacks of being back in the hospital and think about well, get ready to die because you could die right now. Yeah, you know, so it's you know definitely. Uh, you know, reoriented me, um, you know, towards a greater appreciation of the imminence of death and, uh, you know, how to be ready for it. Um, but still, I, I don't know, you know, how many of us are, you know, fully ready. Yeah, no. And are you working in the moment on a sequel to uh, Joseph Levy? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, well, you know, I was... Uh, struggling with what to write uh the last maybe six months or so and uh you know one of my old dmt volunteers actually uh you know we were on the phone and he said you know you know weren't you working on another installment of joseph levy and i said oh yeah yeah you're right you know so it was um a you know, catalog of his drug and alcohol experiences as, um, as a younger man and I had been, you know, working on it for years. And I went back, you know, to my hard drive and, you know, downloaded stuff. And I've got like 300 pages of, you know, of, you know, trip accounts and alcohol, you know, drunk accounts. And, you know, it's a young Joseph Levy, you know, gets stoned and gets drunk. And, uh, you know, there's some you know, pretty interesting accounts there. So uh, I've been working on those chapters. Uh I think, you know, to understand the experiences that the character undergoes with drugs and alcohol when he's in his teens and 20s, uh, it's important to give some, you know, background, you know, to his upbringing, his you know, family, his parents, his you know, teachers and friends, uh, yeah. you know, religious school. Yeah, you know, so I'll need to, uh, you know, write some new material there. I've got about a quarter of, of you know, that written. Uh, so... Yeah, yeah, uh, you know that'll be you know the new installment. You know, Joseph Levy does drugs, or Joseph, or you know, young Joseph Levy, um, and the story will you know probably end when the gates of the monastery close behind me when I'm 22. Um, I got depressed when I was a first-year medical student and I dropped out. It was just too much, um, and I ended up at a Zen temple. And, you know, the gates close behind you and the yeah. new stage of your life begins. You know, so that's when I think uh, young Joseph Levy, you know, volume one, uh, you know, will will stop, is going to end. I, you know, I, I love them. I think they're great, these, these the, the Joseph Levy character, because it really shows who Rick Strassman is. We, I, don't, I don't think we appreciate from DMT, the spirit molecule, who Rick Strassman is, because it's such a scientifically based literature. Of course, your character and your personality is deeply threaded through it. But these stories are, are, are in, uh, far more intimate. Yeah. Um, well, I think you know, that's one of the reasons that I wrote the book. Um, you know, I'm a bit of an introvert, and I I just hate being, you know, projected onto, you know, like, uh, you know, if, you know, you know, like if I'm in, you know, the center of attention, it you know, feels like, you know, it, it as much, you know, feels like I have a you know, bullseye on, on my back as anything else. I enjoy it, but I, you know, realize it's, 
it's you know it's you know potentially you know dangerous and ephemeral at best you know so you know people assume certain things about me and uh you know that kind of bothered me and i said you know i almost died i'd like the real story about or you know my version of things or my slant on reality to you know be available um, as, as much as this uh this you know figure who you know wrote the dmt book or you know biblical scholar with all of those you know references to the bible and the prophecy book you know i've got good stories to tell i'm a good storyteller you know the written word anyway yeah and i figured well you know writers write that's the next thing that seems you know pressing to get out um so you know so yeah it was you know it, it still is a gamble you know the evening you know before you know, the book was published i was you know laying up all night thinking i should uh, you know i should you know pull the plug pull the plug you know don't let anybody you know read this book you'll just be uh you know people are going to hate you they'll think you're some kind of a jerk and you know you'll have no more friends you know but I figured, well, I, I wrote the book. It took eight. It you know, took 18 months to write. It's it's an account of a you know very interesting you know, time in my life. So just let's pull the trigger. You know the trigger. You know let's you know, see where the cards you know fall. And you know uh, you know the book has gotten a you know, very good reception. Uh, it was a very small press, just one guy, one man. You know Preston Berkeley. Um, you know so you know marketing has been a, a bit of a struggle. You know but you know people that read the book. You know, really love it, uh, or um, at least the ones that leave comments on Amazon and speak to me, or you know, or you know, contact me. You know, they love the book. Uh, so, even though it's a bit you know raw and exposes you know parts of myself that uh, I've mixed you know feelings about, I think overall uh, it you know had its intended impact. Yeah, and I, I'm I am glad you've released it, and like you say, it's raw and 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 talks about intimate parts of yourself, but they're also intimate parts of all of us. The introvert within all of us uh, is quite self-doubting, somewhat pessimistic at times. Uh, it can't, it's not, we're not all love and light, you know, and I think a lot of it in the spiritual community or the psychedelic community, we can become complacent and think it's all love and light. And to see this kind of the real workings of the inner mind. A lot of your insecurities and my insecurities are human insecurities and, and life. And I think that's what's refreshing and unique about the book. Yeah, you know, uh, a few weeks ago, you know, somebody wrote me uh, like a you know, brief review and you know, they said, you know, great literature extracts meaning you know, from suffering. Mm. And uh, I thought, you know, that was an accurate you know, rendition uh, of what I was, you know, trying to get across, extract some, you know, meaning, you know, from suffering. It isn't meaningless. You can, uh, you can learn from it. You can, you know, fight against it. You can, uh, you know, plead with it. Uh, yeah, you know, so, uh, yeah, I'm, um, I am, you know, glad, you know, uh, that you could, you know, see the, uh, you know, the, well, the import or more implications uh, of the book. Yeah. Right. And just my final question, Rick, for today, and it might seem a little bit ad hoc and we've kind of overlooked it through the conversation, but it's something that I wanted to run past you anyway to get your view on. And that is the idea of love it deeply in, enmeshed in these psychedelic experiences and these experiences of transcendence, religious experiences, uh, near death experiences. This idea of uh, there is these feelings of bliss and love 
this coupled with the similar nature of the DMT molecule with serotonin and this neurotransmitter that you get these feelings of love and bliss. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, what is your conception of love and, and how, uh, how coincidental that it's so aligned with uh, experiences that, that we talk of that are deeply related to the idea of God and death and things like that. There seems to be a correlation there. I just wanted to know your view on it. <laughs> <laughs> love well yeah you could ask me a simpler question uh <laughs> let's see uh love well love is a four-letter word right that's kind mm. of the bottom line uh love well you know the universe is you're created i think out of a you know, sense of love you know god loves his creatures or its creatures um yeah you know uh our being alive is, uh, you know, that's evidence of God's love. Us having a you know, free will is evidence of God's love. Uh, you know, but as opposed to, you know, some beliefs that, you know, God is only love, I think that's misguided. You know, God is a righteous God, a vengeful God, a jealous God, uh, you know, God that, you know, doesn't forget. Um, you sin, you have to repent or you're punished. You know, so, you know, those all can be understood or explained from the lens of cause and effect. It's just an anthropomorphizing of cause and effect. Um, in other words, you, you do certain things and there are certain consequences. And if those consequences were the result of the action of a human, this is the way you describe them. You know, but it's impersonal in a way. It's just you know, cause and effect, a certain kind of cause and effect, which, is, it, which encourages certain behavior and discourages others. So I think you know, the feeling of you know, love in the psychedelic state or you know religious exaltation has to be balanced with the you know notion of you know righteousness um, and uh, you know justice. Um, you don't live in the world just based on love. I mean that's kind of like we're all one. We're all in this white light schmas kind of uh, notion. Uh, you know there are distinctions. Uh, if you know somebody's coming at you to kill you. You know, what do you do? Do you love them or do you shoot back? You know, so I think you need to be discriminating. And, uh, you know, discrimination involves, you know, dealing with duality, which is what we, you know, face all of the time. You know, so, you know, there is, you know, love as evidenced in uh, the nature of existence. But, you know, there's also, uh, you know, you know, there's also, you know, phenomena that point in uh, the other direction. Um, you, you know, one of our volunteers uh, was a guy that had, you know, mostly only taken MDMA. He had tripped on, you know, mushrooms once or twice, but he loved MDMA. You know, he, you know, came in in, in his, you know, tie-dye T-shirt, his long curly permed hair, his, you know, groovy granny glasses, uh, and you know, baggy pants, and you know, he was expecting this, you know, DMT trip to be all about, you know, love and light, and instead. Dead, you know, he was raped, annually raped by crocodiles. You know, so uh, <clears throat> I think uh, you have to keep your wits about you. If you only choose to see the light and the love, you're going to be surprised, uh, you know, by what the nature of, of, you know, of both your reality is and, and, you know, that of the outside world. Wonderful. 
Yeah, I think um, a, a great end to our discussion. And I would just announce now the winner of your audio book um, is Jay Hamilton, one of our subscribers, and I will be uh, contacting them directly to give them a copy of your book. Um, is there anything else you would like to add, add Rick? Any more information you'd like to, to put out there to our subscribers, our viewers? Um, well, uh, you know, if you're interested in you know, contacting me, ordering books, uh, you know, through my website, uh, you can go on to rickstrassman.com, and I answer, you know, pretty much every email that, that I get. Uh, and, you know, specifically, I, I've got, uh, you know, quite a few of those, you know, free promo codes, you know, for the Audible yep. book, you know, so uh, uh, if, you know, people, you know, would like a you know, free copy of you know, the, the audio book in exchange for, you're writing a review or, you know, telling their friends, you know, I would be happy to you know, give them a free copy. That's perfect. I mean, you must be replying to a lot of emails, Rick. I've replied to a lot of emails. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's fun. Uh, you know, like I enjoy it. Um, you know, I you know, qualify my statement that I respond to every email. I used to respond to every email and I've, probably gotten 20,000 over the last 20 years. Um, you know, but you know, there have been maybe two or three which are really mad and crazy, and I don't respond to those because you just you have to ignore those kinds of emails. But, you know, yeah. but uh, I'd, I'd say of, you know, of, you know, of, uh, you know, 20,000, of, you know, 20,000 emails I've responded to, you know, all but a small handful you know, I can't, you know, promise I will I'm engage in a long-term, you know, correspondence, you know, but I will at least respond once. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, and thanks again, Rick, for this discussion. I hope we've touched on um, some key areas here, maybe some points that haven't been covered before. So it's been a delight to talk with you, Rick. Uh, well, thanks. Uh, it was a pleasure. Yeah, I think we, uh, you know, covered some interesting territory. Right, so we look forward to Joseph uh, Levy and number two, drugs and drinks. Young Joseph, young young Joseph Levy, yeah. Uh, well, you know, God willing, yeah. I'm been you know, working on it, so uh, you know, hopefully it'll you know be out sometime next year. Okay, thanks a lot, Rick, uh, Dr. Rick Strassman. Thank you very much.